This is Disaster Tales. Kate Fairweather, and today we're going to be talking about the effects of the pandemic that don't have to do directly with the illness. There's effects that are happening now, and there's effects we can expect after this pandemic winds down. My co-host today is Barb Lonsky. Hi, Barb. Hi. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> How is it up Here there? Here in Cloudy Genoa. I was going to ask. We've got snow on the ground. Do you? Yes, we do. Not as much as you, I don't think. Yeah, we've got, it's starting, it melted off. You've had worse. It melted off yesterday, so there's not very much left, but Mm -hmm. uh, you know how it snows down here. It snows. You can have it. And (laughs) it snows, and then three days later, no snow. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways. I get that. (laughs) So, you know, there's. We have an outrageous number of people who have this disease, and we've lost over 310,000 people to COVID. And it doesn't show, because we're having a more, a more, it's not a more virulent, it's more contagious form of it that's come here from where it mutated in Britain or somewhere over there. Uh, it, it looks like unless we can really get this vaccine out and really get people on board with it, then it's going to take a while for us to get through this pandemic. Hopefully, we can get through it by summer. So we, we're going to talk today about the effects, the non-illness effects of this kind of a disaster on the population of the, of the states and actually the population of the world. So what you got, Barb? Well, I think, first of all, you know, we need to understand that the long-term effects of this pandemic is going to transform society. It cha- it's changing the way people think about human interaction, social interaction. And there's a wide range of effects associated with the uh, quarantine and the isolation that people are experiencing, the changes in their work uh, situations, school situations. And I just want to kind of address a few of those things. Um, so first of all, I think that the feelings that people have first of, in a in a quarantine situation, I'm just going to list a few of those and just kind of elaborate a little bit on each one of them. Um, first of all, fear. Obviously, people are mm-hmm. fearful because this has been a, a disease with a lot of fatality and people are very afraid that they're going to catch it. So fear often will trigger anxiety um, where people are afraid to interact with people socially. They don't want to touch people. They don't want to, you know, be out in public. All of that self-protective, but at the same time, it has a grave psychological effect on people. A lot of people are suffering with depression um, because they, they just don't have the coping mechanisms or their coping mechanisms are strained to the point where they succumb to feelings of, of anxiety and loneliness and, and just feeling like it's never going to end. And that longevity of the time that people have been in isolation has had a really difficult effect on people, especially adolescents. Because adolescents are 
very social and they they need their friends to interact with and they need that peer interaction that that those normal interpersonal things are not are not happening and so they develop depressive disorders and anxiety disorders and a lot of them are committing suicide which is terrible because it isn't a permanent situation but to a, a child who's used to having all of that that going on in their life and then going into an isolation situation, it does make them feel hopeless and a lot of them are taking their lives, which is really sad. Um, loneliness. This is something that I've struggled with. I'm a, you know, over 60. I don't go out very much because, you know, I'm, I'm aware that I'm in that demographic that can be, mm-hmm. you know, suffer mortality from it. And so I'm, I'm at home alone a lot. And, you know, there's only so much social media, it doesn't meet those interpersonal needs that you have. You know, my husband has remained as an essential worker. He's, he's remained working and I've been at home by myself. And so, you know, people who normally I would interact with, I'm not having that interaction. They've canceled Bible study or they've canceled, you know, the, the ladies get together or whatever. And so that has changed my interaction with people and I'm pretty social. So for me, it's been, it's been tough. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the isolation is really um, taking its toll on people. And there's there's so many things that are going on as cascade effect from this. Mm-hmm. People who have financial issues because they've lost their jobs or their businesses have had to be closed. You know, people who are trying to protect their health. And so that produces even more stress. People are very short-fused. And it it seems like the the anger and the 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 violence in some respects has increased because of those feelings of of being out of control. You know, pe- people like to be in control. You know, it's it's um it's something that is part of our basic needs as a human. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, that self actualization. You know, to be desire to be the best that you can be, to be in control and be the master of your own destiny. And people really feel like those things have been taken away from them yeah. because of the forced isolation. Um, and I think that that symptoms of of those things of loneliness, the anxiety, the depression, are magnified in children because they don't have understanding, and so they fear well, what if something happens and what if I get sick or what if mom or your daddy gets sick or what if grandma or grandpa gets sick? And and so they start to suffer from stress-related illnesses mm-hmm. and um, sometimes stomach issues or headaches or, you know, just being overly excitable or, or anxious about things. And because family dynamic has changed with parents being and working at home and being having to perform their work duties in the home setting where there's not any separation from your family unit produces its own set of circumstances. And sadly, some of it results in abuse or substance abuse or, you know, just that those feelings of desperate, you know, like this, I just don't have any, any way to get away from things because we're, we're encouraged to stay inside, you know, there has been an uptick in domestic violence. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's um, largely the, the fact that people are together more than they ever have been. You know, they, they're, mommy goes to work, kids go to school, daddy goes to work. 
They spend four or five hours a day, maybe at most together. But because of this situation, they're spending their entire day, night, everything, every moment together. And that really does produce some stress, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, And I think, you know, people need positive interaction from outside groups. You need that especially with with young kids and with teens, because you need that peer approval and you need that peer interaction and people your own age and talking about ideas and and sharing, you know, social uh, interaction. And with all of that gone, these kids don't know what to do with themselves. And they spend hours on video, you know, on, on watching videos or, you know, interacting on social media or playing games or, you know, just... They're, they're not getting outside. Their minds are starting to really suffer from it. Yeah. My grandson, on the weekends, he spends a lot of time playing video games with his friends. And, and, it's, and, it's, um, and that's how he's getting his peer interaction. So we're, we're, we kind of let him just do it. Of course, he's homeschooling as well, so he has to do that during the week. But in the weekends, he gets to play, and he has fun, and he gets to talk to his friends. and. But it's not the same as hanging out with your friends yeah. with your mom not around. So, right, right, that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because you can't talk about the kind of things that kids talk about when mom's sitting right there. You right. know, which doesn't mean that it's wrong, but it's just how you develop your relationships when you're in that age group and that demographic. So, yep, um, yeah, fourteen-year-old boys. Think, there's a lot of you cussing know, the, the, and a lot of. A lot of cussing oh, yeah. and a lot of griping. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> I know that a couple of my grandchildren have been in the honor society mm-hmm. and they weren't even able to go and do honor society recognition. And that's part of their social interaction and part of their, their life. They were mm-hmm. involved in drama. Now they can't do drama. You know, they were involved in all kinds of different things. And so everything has really slowed down for them mm-hmm. and they're not used to functioning that way. Well, so, I know I told my um, grandson yesterday, I, think, you know, I told my grandson yesterday, you need to pay attention to what's going on right now because nothing like this has happened for the over a hundred years. And with all the things that are going on, like you ask us what happened at 9-11, what, what were you doing on 9-11? People are going to be asking you, how was it to live through that? So pay attention because... You're going to be able to pass this information on. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, the value of of having that family interaction, if it's done in a healthy way, is is good. I mean, there's there's opportunity to build relationships and to play board games and to, you know, interact with each other and laugh together. And, mm-hmm. you know, but sadly, in a lot of situations, that's not how people interact because they don't know how. You know, they, they yeah. need to get back to those basic things, you know. Well, I know everybody and here. And not just have a video babysit. <laughs> I know that everybody here, we respect their privacy. A lot of times they'll spend a lot of time in their room when they don't feel like talking to anybody. Or, you know, just kind of hiding out and and thinking for yourself. Because this house is not a large house. This is a pretty small house. But, and it seems to be, we seem to be Okay. I mean, we haven't killed each other. We're still talking to each other. We really don't argue. And so mm-hmm. isolation hasn't been 
terrible for us. I mean, it's not great, but it's, we're not killing each other. So that's good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think recognizing the people's needs for that, those psychological needs, you know, which is also part of that hierarchy, you know, that, that people need the physical things, but they also need those emotional and spiritual things where they have a time to sit and to think and to, to, you know, be alone. Mm -hmm. We do need that. You know, that's part of our of our makeup as a human. But I think that there's also a danger in some respects because of the lack of physical interaction. You know, you look at things like people uh, like the people in the in uh, care homes and things like that, where they they're used to getting a hug from their family member or seeing their family member. Mm -hmm. And they're not able to do that on a physical basis. And we need that physical touch. We need that hug and we need that interaction physically. Mm -hmm. Also you know, that it comes with that fear. Well, if I touch them or if I interact with them closely, then I'm going to get sick. Well, I think that the psychological effects can be damaging to people and that it's not, you have to kind of look at it from a standpoint of which is worse. You know, you weigh it out to decide which one is going to be the most beneficial or the, the least beneficial. I think there's a distrust of other people too. You know, people, you're out in public and, you know, it's like, I have to maintain six feet of social distance. And if you step within five and a half feet of me, I'm going to freak out, you know, because you're going to make me sick. And so there's a, a suspicion there. Yeah. And, and when I, because we went out and got our vaccinations, the first one. And when we did, they had the, the gross, it was at a drugstore at a grocery store. And so the store had put out circles every six feet. And you know me, when somebody does something like that, I give them the look. That's the look that will make a two-year-old cry across the room. That look. You've seen it. <laughs> and, and, and so they stayed I've away. I've given it. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> it's that look. Like With young people, especially like children who've not been around anybody who's been ill or people who have never experienced a death in their family. It's hard for them to understand. Mm -hmm. I can't go and give grandma a hug. I can't, you know, visit and do our holidays like we've always done. It's changed, you know, family traditions. It's changed Mm -hmm. the way that we interact with people. And um, I, you know, I feel like the masks, although I know they're a physical barrier and that they do protect you from droplets that they also create a lot of confusion in interaction. Because if you can't see a person's entire face, right. if you can't see if they're smiling, if you can't see if they're reacting to you, a lot of people have trouble being able to hear people when they're wearing a mask. You know, So you misunderstand what they're saying because it muffles the sound. Plus, a lot of people are lip readers without even realizing. Right, I am. I, I am a lip reader, and I do have problems... A little bit with that, um, but the the you know here's the thing that somebody mentioned to me a little while ago is that everybody is really tired of this and they're upset and but the but what they're not remembering is that this is going to end. You know, this is a people were I think it was said about people who were going to travel to their relatives for the holidays one of the doctors said, this is a once in a lifetime event. 
And so you compare your risk to any family members, including yourself, by missing one year out of your lifetime at getting together and then, um, I'm sorry, getting together as a group and then the next year you actually have all your relatives to visit when it comes around. Did that make sense? I'm not mm -hmm. sure that made sense. Yes, it does. And But the thing is that people have to be able to to view it from the standpoint of self-protection and protection of other people. You know, I, a lot of people think that this is not a thing. And, and that's, they have a right to their opinion, but at the same time, if it is something that can be, I mean, you have to do it out of respect for other people. You know, you respect their, you know, need for health. And I think that that shows a great deal of compassion and love. Right. Um, and it, it, the, the mask wearing itself, I think that there's some so sociological, but also some psychological issues that go along with it. You know, like, I can't feel like I can't breathe. Right. You know, we're not used to being, you know, wearing something and it can trigger anxiety. And then you end up with a person who's suffering every time they go out in public because they have to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's alternatives. There's, you know, face shields and things like that, which right. if you have a problem with that, then that is a good option for you. But um, it, it definitely has made a huge difference in people's lives as far as the way that they interact with other people. Yeah. You know, I think for elderly people, I know for myself, for me to go out to the store, that's like my social interaction. Mm -hmm. I, you know, otherwise I really don't talk to people. And so for me to be able to go out to a store and say, hi, how you doing? And maybe you develop a, a little bit of a, a, a relationship with a person or, you know, get to know them a little bit and, and feel like they're an acquaintance. Those things are, are pretty much absent with the masks. You don't have the ability to, to really interact on a level that is comfortable. Have you, you know? seen that in hospitals, so, there's I mean, doctors and nurses are wearing masks that have their faces printed on them. So it doesn't look like they're wearing a mask unless you look closely. And that seems to be helping oh, really? <laughs> with the anxiety of the patients in the COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the COVID, uh, yeah. not labs. COVID warts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Then there's the whole issue of frontline workers, mm -hmm. healthcare workers, and people who have had to maintain, you know, their employment to provide essential services. I mean, I think everybody's job is essential because you can't survive without your job. But at the same time, there are some that are more um, interactive in the in the community in the public. Right. And you know that creates stress for them. I've talked to nurses who, or and respiratory therapists, you know, that they get home from work at night. And they go in the in the garage and they take off all of their clothes and they get in the shower before mm -hmm. they even begin to interact with their family, That's which, which is here. good. It's self-protective and mm -hmm. protects them. Yeah. But at the same time, that completely changes your dynamic mm -hmm. in your family. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I want to give mommy a hug. Well, wait, we got to wait until she's, you know, de-loused. <laughs> De-COVIDed it in. <laughs> De-COVIDed it in, you know. And yep. you know the lack of of per personal protective equipment in the in the hospitals and in, with for the frontline workers, you know, and the stress level when you're caring for severely ill patients. Because I remember when I worked in hospital in 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 Texas, we had what they called croup season, which was where right. you would get the pediatric floor would fill up. 
I mean, you would have so many croup patients on the pediatric floor in the spring and they'd have to be in oxygen tents and you had to go in and do treatments on them. And we would work 12 hour shifts five days a week. And, um, and it was devastating. You know, I mean, you're physically, you're exhausted. Then you have to go home to your family and try to deal with, with everything you have to deal with with your family as well and the adjustments that they're having to make. And so it really does put a lot of stress on people. Yeah. Or they're staying at a hotel or some, so they don't even have family to go home right. to because it's too dangerous for right. their family. So, yeah, that's that's difficult. I know croup season is in the spring because that's when the pollen is out and the dust is blowing because my son right. had asthma very very badly and uh he he'd get sick every spring so i i get your croup season <laughs> i can re- i can remember uh, uh one of my coworkers. we were doing 12-hour shifts and we were working 7 p.m to 7 a.m which is a long shift yeah and we couldn't find her we didn't know where she was and so we went looking and we followed her treatment path and she was sitting in the chair next to the bed doing a percussion treatment on a baby who was asleep and her head was on her arm and she was asleep too, you know? So it was one of those situations where she, she conked out, you know, she was exhausted. And so that's, that's something that these people have to deal with. And as the numbers go up and the the, the hospitals get more uh, filled with patients and and many of them very critically ill, it, it really takes its toll on their workers. Yeah, and not only is it the long shifts, it's it's stressful because on top of just taking care of croup patients, which you don't normally take home with you, you have people who are worried about spreading the infection, getting the infection, watching people die over and over again every day, and they haven't been getting very much mm-hmm. time off. And this has been going on since April. And these people are, they are stressed to the max. They're, they're past the end of their rope. The only reason that they're still functioning is Mm -hmm. because they feel the need to make sure they give the best care to these people. And these people are dying terrible deaths because they're, they're drowning and they're, but they're conscious and they're asking, they're asking the workers, I'm not going to make it, am I? And, and the workers are, what do you say to that? You know? You see, right. so right. you're not doing very well. And then these right. people are also on the verge of death and they're helping them call their families so that they can say goodbye. Because like I said, they're staying conscious during most of this. So that's hard right. to listen to, you know, because they have to facilitate it. They have to take in the sure. iPad and, and, sta- and listen to it, basically. And so... Right. You know, there's so much additional psychological stress going on with the, our healthcare workers that um, okay. I, I honestly don't know why we have we haven't had more people go nuts. I guess I know a, a lot. We've lost a lot well, of healthcare workers to COVID too, and that's another fear. So their stress right. levels are way above high. Right. And the thing is that an increased level of stress diminishes your immune response. And so your your immune system becomes depressed. And so it's really important for those those workers to pay attention to their own immune systems and to to get the proper, you know, balance of of rest. I mean, these people are going to be there regardless. Mm -hmm. And sadly, there's only a certain number of people who can take care of them. And so they 
need to really guard their own health in order to be able to provide the services that these people need in the long term. And that's a delicate balance. It, it really is. is. It is. I know I've been talking to my doctor in the family, and um, he says that the, the situation is so critical nationwide that he's concerned that the entire healthcare system is getting ready to fail. And he said that in his hospital, they were not taking COVID patients, but, but it's become so bad that they have to. And he's getting requests from out of state. He's in Dallas. He's getting requests from California, you know, to send patients there. And he's trying to send patients, critical patients to Houston. And, and he's, he said he had one patient they were going to transport to Houston, and he was so bad, he said, no, just leave, we're going to keep him here. And he died before he would have gotten to Houston. So he would have died on an airplane or, yeah, airplane, helicopter, right. whatever. But, you know, so. Transport, yeah. Exactly. And, and so that's hard on him, but he's also looking at the fact that, the, the, especially like California, the healthcare system is so overwhelmed that something's got to give, you know, and right, and that I don't know what that will look like. Right. Well, and I think solution-wise too that there's some financial issues that go along with it too. You know, the finances of maintaining the level of care that you have to maintain for a critically ill patient with, you know, ventilators and ICU and, and the nursing staff. And then these people go through rehabilitation because they have severe post-illness post problems. They have to go to rehab. You know, they lose function in their bodies because they've been paralyzed out on the ventilator for a month, you know, and all of those things have to be recouped. As it definitely has some very far-reaching effects. It does. You know, you, you look at it, it's not just somebody gets sick and they get better and they go home. I mean, we have another family member who, who had COVID who is still struggling with the post-effects of it. Cardiac issues and blood issues, you know, where they're, they're having difficulty with fatigue and having trouble keeping working because of their physical strength. And so it definitely has a long-term effect. And the family Families who've lost family members, yeah. they have to deal with the expense of burial. They have to deal with the fact that they can't attend the funeral. That is just, that's part of the process of, mm -hmm. of putting someone to rest is being able to be there and to grieve it through. And, and it's just completely turned on its head, you know? Right. It is. Uh, and, and in addition to that, the stress that's rising in people who are sick and not sick exacerbates any of their existing health conditions, makes their diabetes, their mm -hmm. blood sugar worse, or, you know, gives them heart mm -hmm. failure or things like that. So it's, it's not just the disease that's causing the problems that we're having right now. It, it's everything right. that surrounds it. There's a lot more incident of violent crime too, you know, mm -hmm. shootings and, you know, murders and, and assaults and things like that are on the increase because people are so frustrated. They were told, okay, two weeks to stop the spread. And that's been 358 days ago. <laughs> and so their frustration level, you know, has produced this anger and just this seething kind of stressful undertone in every interaction that you have. Is mm -hmm. somebody going to snap, you know, and people do, you mm -hmm. know, so you, you've seen it. Yeah. 
The other side of this coin is that events like this can be associated with post-traumatic growth, which means it, basically if you mm. get through it, then you're going to be better for it. I think is what they're talking about there. And, right. and if you consider it, it's you hard know, to see that when you're in the middle of it, though. It is, but that, but that's why maintaining that this is not permanent attitude helps you get through it. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, quarantine, right. isolation—they're all—they all contribute to your mental and physical unhealth. But the, but mm -hmm. you will, but I, most people will develop res resilience from this. They'll they'll be able to. Mm -hmm. Once things are calm again, they if they come across a a challenge, they can say, "Well, I did that, so I can deal with this." You know, where otherwise they might not have been right. able to say that. I can attest to how that adversity works. I had a a season in my life where I was bedridden mm -hmm. because of back issues, and I made a decision at that point that if I was able to ever get up and get around again and do what I needed to do again, I would do it with zeal. Mm -hmm. And that has been my, you know, my way of life since that point. You know, I wasn't going to sit and watch the Beverly Hillbillies anymore. I had to watch <laughs> them when I was bedridden. You oh, know, Gilligan's Island, you know, it's like <laughs> never again will I waste my life on television. You know, and I've kept myself to that, too, mm -hmm. and been active and been involved and, you know, did crafts or hobbies and things like that so I think you're you're right about coming out of it on the other side with a different viewpoint about activity and your recreations like that yeah after a pandemic when there's a high death rate you will find that the heirs inherit property and wealth after the bubonic plague they did that um, after the 19 18 influenza epidemic you think about the 1920s and the funds that were available there before the depression um, when that happens mm -hmm. they get life insurance payouts and things like that the cons consumer numbers drop because there's not as many people and and heirs are less likely to accept lower paying jobs because they have a little financial backing now um, in nineteen, mm -hmm. in the bubonic plague, in the Black Death, labor was in such short supply that the lords were forced to give better terms of tenure to their serfs, because the serfs say, "Well, I'm not going to work for that because I can live live on this," you know. So, minimum wage goes up when right. that happens. Uh, that's what happened in 1918. The minimum wage rose after the influenza epidemic because there weren't as many workers, and the workers that they had demanded higher wages and eventually in the black death the plague brought the eventual end of serfdom in the western world and started it basically started the renaissance period that that having time and and resources to stop and think and research and test and it changes your art and your literature it, there, there's more of a chance to get that done because you're not working out survival wages. 
And I think that that meets those needs that we talked about with Maslow, you know, that those when those needs are met for security and safety and self-actualization and love and belonging, you know, those psychological needs, all of those are met, then people have the ability to engage in activity that is less like basic as far as survival. You know, right. if you have an income, if you have, you know, land, if you have all these things that, you know, make your life so that you can prosper, then you're going to prosper in other areas, too, mm-hmm. not just financially. Yeah. And there's so also yeah. there's a there's a smaller consumer base for the age group or the or the population that is most affected by it. And the other thing that's happened is that since this started, a lot of elder workers have left the job market they've retired basically for their own safety it's why should i put up with this when i can just stay home and get paid and so that means that there's a um, a higher demand in the job market which means that wages will go up so in the end for skill there are some good things that happen afterwards and we've seen a shift in the work experience um once again, the Black Death, it encouraged innovation of labor-saving devices, and that led to higher productivity. You get more work done in less hours, and, and that really enhances the wealth of the entire society. The technology that we have available has made a huge difference in the, the ability for people to remain productive in a situation like this. Yeah. You know, like you were, I think you were just alluding to it, you know, things where you can interact online, where you can work from home, you're remote, you have a hookup to the internet so that you can actually be, still be productive in right. your work, work situation without being physically there. Yeah. yeah and, the, and we're using those remote tools for school, for meetings you can there's there's now applications where you can play games online with people you know or you can use your phone camera to include them in events and things like that so um i think that that's an innovation that we're going to see that's not going to go away i think working from home is something that's going to become a little more popular as well just because you don't have the disruption of people who travel for business you know or ha- or worry about getting right. to the office on time and you also lose that overhead cost of keeping a place so big and all the equipment for all of the workers in one place um, I th- so I think that that may contribute to that as well but working from home is going to become much much more popular for people especially the younger people Right. But I think that, too, that there still is a decrease in the number of people who are going into the trades, the number of people who are working um, in the the blue collar, you know, situations. Mm-hmm. And so the the need for those things, plumbers, electricians, you know, welders, all of those things that you can't do from working remotely at home, right. that those are areas that apprenticeships and, and an increase in people going into those things is going to be very prosperous for them. So you have tech, but you can only do so much with tech. Some You still have to do some hands-on. Right. And but, the same thing with the medical profession. There's still yes. a need for those skilled workers. There is. But for other workers... This this has this event has transformed the whole work model for them, and 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to it's going to change things. Um, right. For one thing, it's going to cut those business business expenses. And those cuts are going to affect airlines, the tourism industry, the oil industry. Um, I know the airlines mm-hmm. have been really hit hard by this. Well, but... a lot of that is because they've sh- Go ahead. They've shuttered all the restaurants, you know, places mm-hmm. where people would normally go on a vacation and go out to eat and, and be, you know, engage in shopping and different things like that. They've completely shut a lot of that down in this country. And right. so that tourism industry was key to a lot of areas, mm-hmm. prosperity and success. And so there's a shift, a whole shift in the paradigm. And it, the cascade effect of it is that the small businessman, the middle American is being forced out of the workforce and mm-hmm. having to make changes. It is. And, and it's caused, that has also caused innovation. A lot of brick and mortar stores have gone almost exclusively to online commerce because that's their only option, but they're, but, but, the, but they're doing well with it because there's the, the generation that grew up with this tech is now of the adult buying age. And so they're really familiar with that format. And so I think that when when businesses make the shift to online presence, then it's it's really working well for a lot of them. Um, it also You mean has, they're not dinosaurs like me on the interwebs? You, you mean me on the interwebs? I'm not explaining the internet to you again. <laughs> They're not dinosaurs like me on the interwebs. <laughs> yes. Good lord. Well, I've I've I also like closed the window. I just get up and walk over and close the window. You know? <laughs> What's window? Yeah. <laughs> I'm also seeing effects on housing markets. I know that during the summer, there it was a in in your area there was a diaspora f- from the. New York City, and uh, what what was happening mm-hmm. is the urban folks were trying to find l- rural places to live where they wouldn't have the constant contact during the pandemic. And so, when the pandemic is slowing down, I expect to see a lot of those houses go back on the market. I think too that the that were destroyed during the riots and things like that has driven people out of urban areas and into rural settings. There was a lot, a lot of unrest. There is, and th- and that comes with the stress of the pandemic. Um, that's that's one of the things that back in February, I started preparing for this, and one of the things on my list was expect civil unrest, and sure enough, mm-hmm. that's what happened. So you predicted it. I predicted a lot of this stuff, and. Unfortunately, I'm not in a position where people actually listen to me, <laughs> so uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, so like now I, we've talked about all the bad things. <laughs> <laughs> so post-pandemic, more homes are going to be available as people are evicted and panic purchasers sell off. That's, that's my next prediction. There's going to be long-term effects on our healthcare system as well. There's gonna, there is a call now, and it's, and it's become greater for comprehensive health care support because this insurance system that we're on is really, it causes a huge disparity in the health care that's available to you. If you have good insurance, 
you get good care. If you don't have insurance, you only go when you absolutely have to. And so I think we're going to see... Or if you have Medicaid, you get everything done that you need done. But there's still a lot of out-of-pocket costs. <laughs> if you have that. Medicaid, then you get everything done that you get done. Oh, that's a hit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I... I yeah, it's like, you know, it's, but you know, there's, there's definitely needs to be a, a, a different system. And I think telemed has a lot to do with that. You know, mm -hmm. you can contact your physician online and then, and that, that would bring down, you know, not having to have the infrastructure in place. But there again, a lot of times people's personal responsibility for their health has been relinquished. And that makes a huge difference too. Mm -hmm. If people are, you know, trying to be healthy, eating healthy, doing things that are going to keep them healthy and not abusing substances and smoking and all those things that can produce good health, you know, mm -hmm. and the burden on society a lot of times is because people who are irresponsible with their health. Well, and a lot of people so, need... That's a whole other... That is a whole other way. <laughs> a lot of people need to be educated yeah. as to that, about how to keep their health, how to eat well, how to... Make sure you get enough exercise, how to, you know, just generally monitor your health. They did, they don't know how to do it. And they don't have access, some of them don't have access to healthy foods either. There's urban areas where there's no grocery stores for miles. And those people just, they have to eat what they can find at the convenience store. And that's definitely not usually something healthy. So we're, we're seeing a call for, for health care support to cover more people. We've also seen right. that there's an uptick in applications to medical schools here recently. And they're calling that the Fauci effect because he's heroic. He's trying to save our lives. But I can see why they see that there's a shortage of personnel. And, and we can see that once this is over, there's going to be an even bigger shortage because people are going to stop doing it. So... In a few years, we're probably going to need more doctors, more nurses, more respiratory therapists, more physical therapists. And people are looking at that and thinking, well, that is a good, that sounds like a good career path because I'll have a job. And it's also a partly altruism, you know, that if, you're, if your mother dies of cancer, you want to be a doctor so you can grow up and cure cancer. And I think that's part of it as well. No, I was fortunate to be able to counsel with a young girl who was trying to decide on health professions, and I was able to encourage her to go into respiratory care. So I replaced myself. There you so, go. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing that the, the aging, the baby boomers and the professional people who are aging out of the, the workforce mm -hmm. are not being replaced readily enough to be able to meet the need of the, the burden of health care right. in the country. And that's why I think we have a lot of physicians and from other countries, you know, coming in from other countries, India, China, different, you know. One of the problems Dr. Uh, Vin Gupta was talking about, he was on, he's probably on MSNBC when I saw him. He was saying that it takes, for him to go from where he lives, which I, which I believe is New York City, but I'm not positive, to California and, and be a doctor there, he has to get a, he has to apply for a license in California, and that could take up to five months. And he says, we need to do something to suspend the system so doctor, I can go work in California when they need me, mm -hmm. and then I can go work in Florida when they need me, and in Texas when they need me, or wherever the biggest need is. Right. 
He says, because I can't practice until I'm licensed in the state. So that's causing, there's a lot of things that are causing, little things causing big problems, and we need to find out what those things are and fix them. Um, and I think that we're getting to the point where we can do that. I have a friend who's a substance abuse counselor mm-hmm. who has been, who is, you know, got her, her, her master's in, in counseling, worked at Fort Greeley in Colorado, worked in Florida doing substance abuse counseling, opiate counseling, all those things, came to New York, tried to get her counseling license where the opioid epidemic is absolutely exploding. Mm-hmm. And they refused to allow her to get a license because she didn't take the GRE that New York State required, even though she's been counseling for over 20 years, they would not allow her to be licensed in New York State because the GRE, which is just the the pre-master's test, right. doesn't even have to do with the master's itself. It's the test that you take going into the master's was not the same as what they offered in New York State. And so they refused to license her in New York State. Wow. And here's a person who's got 20 plus years of counseling experience with opioids and worked at Fort Greeley in Colorado with PTSD and Mm -hmm. soldiers, and they won't let her practice, which is just ridiculous. It is. And that's something that needs to be looked at. We're exposing a lot of flaws in our healthcare system and in our response system in general. There has been a mass retirement of people already. And then once the virus is over, we're going to see that same kind of a retirement. I'm leaving the profession thing with uh, healthcare workers as well. Let's see. We're seeing mm-hmm. medical innovations. Uh, if the ones that, yeah. Go ahead. The ones that survive. You know, there's there's a high mortality rate among medical healthcare workers. It's you very know. high. And the ones, the elderly ones, yeah, that, that it's, you know, if there are any left to retire, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Well, I've seen several stories of doctors who came out of retirement to deal with this and died of COVID. So, right. you know, so that's a, that's an issue as well. Um, but the medical innovations we're seeing are, like you said, the telemed. We're also seeing improvements in um, the other equipment, like the 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 ventilators, and we're also changing our approaches to the disease. Originally, they thought it was a lung disease, and then they realized that it was a vascular disease because it was causing blood clots everywhere, and that's why people have all these after effects. It's because they have these massive blood clots, and also they're seeing a a revolution in treatments because they're having to find out what the best way to treat this new disease, and it's different. One of the things they're doing is is proning, or I think it's called pronation, where you you lay the patient on their stomach for a while, and it seems to be effective. It's not effective for all lung type diseases, but it is effective for this one. Well, in in some measure, it is not. I wouldn't say that it is as effective because once you're at the point where you have to prone a person mm-hmm. with ARDS, you probably are already past the point of of return, and so. It may or may not cause more recruitment of lung tissue. I've I've researched it a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and I have a, a friend who's an anesthesiologist who feels like it really isn't. I mean, I guess when you're at that point where you have to do anything you can do, that that's an option. And maybe for some people it did help, but for the most part, it really isn't. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's clinically as helpful as as people say. The, the convalescent um, plasma therapy, 
apparently is pretty pretty successful. I have a friend who was ventilator on the ventilator for three weeks, wow. and they gave convalescent plasma, and he turned around and is doing well. So you know, it's it's definitely uncharted territory and i think that that in itself causes a great degree of anxiety because it really is something we've never dealt with and so we're all in new territory on how to treat it how to how to prevent it how to deal with it as problems come up they're being some they're figuring it out and they're being addressed so they're actually changing their their model for dealing with this disease mm-hmm. from what they started with Right. And I've spoken to different physicians and and heard different things about the fact that because of the patient load, they haven't been able to really study it as well as they need to. They have they haven't been able to do autopsies because of the high mortality rates. And so they really haven't been able to research it as extensively as they need to, to be able to find a definitive answer. And of course, everybody's different. So different people are going to respond to different things, mm-hmm. you know, but um it's definitely produced a great deal of shift in our society. So, I mean, there's some possible things that can help with the, the effects that we talked about earlier, too, the, the psychological and emotional effects. You know, there is a huge boom in online counseling services, mm-hmm. you know, where people are able to hook up with somebody on online and be able to, you know, kind of talk through, chat through whatever mm-hmm. um, their issues and I think it's really important for us to check in on people, you know, right. hey, how you doing, you know, once a week or once every couple of days, how are things going, you know, and, and try to give people an option and a, and a forum to be able to be honest about their feelings. Because mm-hmm. when you're isolated like that and your thoughts are, are you know, going Circling. in a bad direction, you really need somebody to help set you straight. Yeah, mm-hmm. you need, really need that help. And I think, you know, the family activities, you know, like if you're in the home and you have other people there, you do things together. Mm-hmm. But also the the interaction, like we have, you know, a situation in our family where, you know, if somebody gets to the point of feeling really desperate, mm-hmm. we have kind of bound ourselves to say, you have to call somebody. Mm-hmm. You can't do anything about it. If you're feeling suicidal, if you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling like you can't go on, you need to contact at least one person in the family first before mm-hmm. before anything. And so I think that that's really important to know that there is somebody out there who mm-hmm. cares about you, who's you know, got your back. They're looking out for you. And some of that can be done through social media, obviously, because you can, you know, text a quick text. Hey, how you doing? I love you. I think hope things are going OK. And mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have to be careful how much you engage in social media because there's so many things out there that can really cause you to go in a bad direction. Yeah. My, my social media activity has dropped remarkably. Although I'll have you know that if you remember that secret sister Santa thing, uh huh. that, that my favorite started. Well, when I put it on Facebook, they decided it was a scam and I went to Facebook prison I couldn't get on Facebook. Oh no! For seven days, which I didn't really miss, except I was selling a lot of <laughs> watercolor paintings, and so like a lot right. of watercolor paintings. So that, that kind of slowed that down. But I mean, so I'm a Facebook felon. Right. Everybody, just so you know, Facebook felon here. 
she's got a record. Uh-oh, we're in trouble now. <laughs> that's right. Uh, also, one, so. of the, one of the, just quick, one of the other things that's, that's going to happen is insurance companies are going to be experiencing financial difficulties because, first of all, just because of the mass number of life insurance policies that they have to pay out. Their loss ratio. Mm-hmm. And then I think that we're going to see more government support for health care. So I think that health insurance companies may start really battling for for customers. So I think, too, you know, that the with the financial issues that people are having, too, there's a lot of people who are 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 getting to the place where they aren't getting the food that they need. And so I've seen a real increase in um, like food bank services and donation services. And and it's been really heartening to see people step up when you hear about a family who's got an issue in my area, you know, they're right there. They jump right in and they really do help each other. And so mm-hmm. I think that sense of community can still be intact, even though maybe the physical interaction isn't there, but you can still have that sense of community and develop your community around you. Who Who is, who is your neighbor, you know? Like Mm -hmm. Fred Rogers, you know, you're my neighbor. (laughs) And so what we need to be able to be kind to each other and understand that it's hard on everybody. Mm -hmm. It's not just about me. It's about all of these other issues that we're dealing with and everything that we're looking at. And there's always a situation where someone's worse off than you are. And so that helps not feed into that depressive, you know, oh, poor, woe is me thing. If you can, you know, kind of get an idea that, okay, I'm not. I'm not the worst off. There's yeah. other people who have it worse the, than me. That's true. And that, that does help. But there's people who have chronic mental health conditions like depression, oh, sure. yeah. bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. schizophrenia, you know, things like that, that this kind of stress really exacerbates their problems. So you're, you're right. going to see an increase in suicides, I think. If we haven't, I think we already have seen an increase in suicides. We already have. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's that to consider so. too. If you if you have relatives or friends that have mental health issues, then they need to be checked on more often. Right. Yep. And I think too that, you know, keeping a long term outlook on it, not mm-hmm. getting overwhelmed with the day and the stress of the day. It it seems like the last, you know, month or so as soon as you got to over one hurdle, there suddenly was another one. Right. You know, in, in my, in your personal, my personal life, you know, it's like, okay, we got, oh, wait a minute. Now we got this to go through, you know? And so there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things that are not sure, but eventually we'll get back to whatever the new normal is and we'll be able to deal with our, you know, things. And things, things will be different after this, but I don't know that they're going to be bad. I think that a lot of things that are going to be happening are going to be good things. So we we can look forward to this finally ending because it will end. And hopefully it will end mm-hmm. as soon as possible, which I see as June maybe. Maybe a little earlier if we get our vaccination program on track. And mm-hmm. uh, there's going to be yeah. a lot of traveling after that. <laughs> a lot. People are gonna make up for lost time, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. So this is yeah. So this so, is. Uh, 
These are the kind of things that we can expect to happen during any kind of a pandemic like this. And it's not just us, and it's not just our family or our community. This is worldwide. Everybody in the world is having the same problems. Right. And if you re can remember that, and remember that this too shall pass, those two things are the things that give most people the hope they need to cope with it and become resilient. My uh, thought on that is it this too shall pass. It may be like a kidney stone, but this too will pass. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And you have to just keep the long-term outlook that this is just for a short time and we'll go on beyond this. People have survived things that were a lot worse. Right. And every day, well, this is pretty darn bad, but every day yeah. we get closer to the end. It's the shorter time until we're done with this. And we will get done with this. Right. So so out there, if you're listening, One way or hang in there. If you if you need to talk, yeah. you can just send us an email with your thoughts and anything else in it. You can contact Barb at Barb at DisasterTales.com, me at Kate at DisasterTales.com, and, and we'll be happy to answer your email because we care and we know it's we know how it is out there. We're dealing with it ourselves. But just remember that things are going to change, yep. and the change is not going to be terrible. And it will end. Just like my sentence. Yep. Disaster Tales theme music is by Stephanie Cerny. You can check out our website at www.disastertales.com and you can contact me at kate at disastertales.com. Thank you for listening. Today's disaster tip is about social interaction. Um, I don't think it can be overestimated how important it is for us to keep in touch with each other and to have a, maybe even a forum online to talk to each other. I've gotten in the habit of writing notes to people and sending them notes in the mail because there's nothing like going out to the mailbox and finding a letter or a card. So I think it's really important for us to go beyond ourself and look at ways that we can encourage other people and help other people to get through this time of difficulty. And I think that makes our ride a little easier if we're out there helping somebody else. So get outside yourself, do something positive for somebody else to encourage them. That's my tip for today.